Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verses 32 to 39 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 15, 32 to 39. In spite of the title, there will be no talk of gluttony this morning, okay? So just you can breathe easy, it's okay. Wouldn't do that to you the Sunday after Christmas, all right? Um, Matthew chapter 15, verses 32 to 39. Well, May 2nd, 2011 is a day that will live in infamy, even if you don't recall it off the top of your head. That is the day that a team of U.S. soldiers raided a compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, and killed Osama bin Laden. It was soon after that that the nation woke up and heard of the news and then began learning of this group of soldiers called SEAL Team 6. And shortly after that, accounts of the events leading up to and including this raid on this compound in Abbottabad began coming out. One such book was called No Easy Day, written by a man who was on that mission, whose pen name was Mark Owen. He talked about the days leading up to the going into Pakistan to raid this compound. He was on his day off, got a call that they would soon be potentially going to an undisclosed location. And he was given the coordinates of a place in America that he was to be within hours which he packed up his stuff and couldn't tell his wife and drove to the place where he was to go and train. And for days leading up to the mission, before they even knew that the mission was, was going to happen, they had a fort reconstructed in the exact dimensions and everything, an exact replica made in the U.S. of what they would encounter when they got there. And night after night, day after day, They did nothing but train on this compound. They went in as teams. They flew in with helicopters. They uh, trained with uh, with fake ammunition, with guns, and with all kinds of things for the contingencies that might happen, for the ways that they wanted to execute their plan. All of these things happened. And the day actually came where they went on this raid. They come into the compound and the helicopters land and one of them crashes in the backyard of this compound. And the pilot was able to set it down, but it was, needless to say, not going according to plan. But according to Mark Owen in his book, and according to many others that were there at the time, the response of SEAL Team 6 was exactly like what you would expect it to be for someone who had undergone such training. Even though they didn't account for a helicopter crashing, even though they didn't account for some of the things going haywire, What you would expect for someone who has trained so much is that in the moment where it was required, they found that their training was more than adequate to supply their needs. When a soldier is put into a position where they have to perform, it seems that that is the time where their training comes back to them, even if the way over there, they weren't thinking that that's how it was going to go. Well, that's kind of the place that we find the crowd and the disciples here in our story as Jesus and these group of Gentiles are out in the wilderness and far away from civilization and have been without food for three days. 
They're in somewhat of a desperate situation, and it's there that they require the provision of the Lord most. Now, we've been going through this story in Matthew, and this is the last uh, little section of Jesus's opportunity, if you will, ministry to the Gentiles that's been happening all through Matthew chapter 15. Let's read in our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 15, 32 to 39. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for our understanding of your word, for our application of it to our lives. We know we require the Spirit's help to do that. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to see the text in front of us, open our ears to hear your words coming through the text, open our hearts to obey it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we all deal with ailments of some kind. Some of us sicknesses, some of us ailments. Some of those ailments and sicknesses will be with us until the day we die, and some of it is temporary. But regardless of the nature of these ailments, all of it is a reminder that we live in a fallen world. Every ailment we have is an ever-present reminder that we live in a fallen world. We get sick, our bodies wear down, so on and so forth. And so I want you to imagine that we got word that Jesus had come to Tuscaloosa. And with him came credible rumors from perhaps some of your relatives or some of your friends in Birmingham, let's say. They sent word before Jesus got down to Tuscaloosa with stories. You started telling people these. I had this cousin who, who she had really bad back problems and she couldn't do anything. And then Jesus reached out and grabbed her by the hand and lifted her up and now she's jumping on the trampoline with her kids. I had this friend who had a stroke and he lost all use of the left side of his body. and He, he couldn't do anything. And Jesus reached out and, and touched him on the forehead. And now he's running marathons. Imagine the feeling that you would get of anticipation as Jesus was coming your way with all of these credible stories. Imagine you're hearing on the news channels everywhere that the beds at Children's Hospital in Birmingham were all empty because Jesus went to the hospital and room to room, he went and healed all the kids there and they all just took the IVs out and just walked out the door. Wow. Imagine the excitement then when this miracle worker comes to Tuscaloosa and we all begin taking our sick and our ill and our dying, we all begin taking them to the feet of Jesus 
And everything from high blood pressure issues all the way to blindness is wiped away. From cystic fibrosis all the way to amputees, limbs are growing back. People are walking away. Everything is completely and totally healed. Envision yourself on the mountainside next to this man or on the hillside next to this man. You wouldn't just be excited that you were healed. You would feel as though with this man, the curse of the fall has been reversed. It has been turned back. That it no longer exists. Well, this is where we find Jesus and this crowd of people. He has just come to their town. He has healed their sick. He is about to replicate a miracle that he has done for us just four weeks ago. For the disciples, we don't know exactly how long, but it's been some number of days at the very least since he has multiplied bread for a group of people. This time, though, it's not for a predominantly Jewish audience. This time, it's for a Gentile audience. And there's the difference in the passages. Now, you might say, well, we've seen this miracle before. This sounds exactly like the feeding of the 5,000 that we saw just four weeks ago. And you would be partially correct. Some of this feels is basically just a copy and paste of the exact same miracle that happened for us four weeks ago earlier in chapter uh, 14, where Jesus fed the 5,000. But the striking difference is the audience that this miracle is performed for. We learned last week that Jesus' priorities were for the Jewish people. That you don't give to the family pets, you don't give to the dogs what is for the children. We talked about that extensively last week. Jesus said that, that came out of his own mouth. He said that to the Canaanite woman. However, we get a glimpse in this passage of a promising future. In Jesus' own ministry, as the Gentiles become the beneficiaries of this miracle that he's about to do. Now, because, of, because so much of this miracle is similar to the one we saw previously, I could certainly say all of the same things that I said then, but there are a couple of things that I want you to see being pointed out here in this passage. First, is that Jesus' provision is unhindered by the scarcity of resources. Jesus' provision is unhindered by the scarcity of resources. A big difference in this passage and the feeding of the 5,000 happens here at the very beginning uh, of this passage. With the Jewish crowd previously, uh, the disciples come to Jesus and they tell him to dismiss the crowds. The disciples are the ones that initiate the conversation and they say, why don't you dismiss the crowds because it's getting late and you'll, you need to give them time to go get food. And that's when Jesus comes back at them and says, why don't you feed them? But this time, it's Jesus that comes to the disciples and he tells them he wants them to feed the crowds. Similar, uh, similarly to the Jewish audience here it says Jesus is driven by compassion 
He tells them, I have compassion on these people. However, the last time Jesus had compassion, it led him to begin the healing miracles and then all of the things that stemmed from that. Here, however, it's Jesus' compassion that leads him to care for their empty stomachs as he is going to send them away or have the disciples, rather, feed them there in the, uh, uh, basically, wilderness where they are. But the people, as it turns out, it says here, have been with Jesus for three days without any food, which sounds like an incredible amount of time for a crowd to sit content without eating. I know. You think you have it rough sitting here till 12. You know. Imagine three days. All right. But this is not a stretch. If we put ourselves in the shoes of the people that are listening to him. I mean, just consider for a moment Jesus venturing into our own city, healing everyone's ailments. Most of us would not dare venture too far away from Jesus, lest on the way we get attacked by something, or we twist an ankle, sprain a knee, or develop some other more serious condition and need more healing. What do you think these people are feeling? Well, there's a sense of safety. There's a sense of protection that comes from being by the side of Jesus who can, it seems, just heal with a simple word. All he has to do is say something and you're completely healed. But then we would also be more inclined, I think, to listen to the words that are spoken by him. If they accompanied miracles that were were with it. If we saw the lame walking and the blind seeing, we would certainly be more inclined to listen to his words because he clearly has authority over all of these things. So by all means, let's sit around and and listen to what he's got to say. So they clearly have a need for the protection of the Messiah and to hear what he has to say. But you also have to consider for just a moment, especially for the skeptic, the truth of Jesus Miraculous works. Even the most hardened atheist, who right now the most vocal atheist in our culture is Richard Dawkins, he freely admits that Jesus of Nazareth was a true historical figure. That he was popular in the region of Galilee, and that he was ultimately crucified or at least put to death by the Romans of the early first century. But think about what it must mean for Jesus to not only have notoriety, but so much notoriety that crowds of Gentiles would hang around for three days to hear what he has to say. When you imagine a Galilean village during this time, Sometimes our minds go to something like the city of Tuscaloosa, and we think, a big town. When you think of a Galilean village in the first century, don't think big town. A Galilean village, the area of dirt that a village around the Sea of Galilee would cover, is not much more than a couple of baseball throws across. (laughs) Not very long at all. Well, for some of you, maybe 15 or 16 baseball throws. But you get the idea. Not very long, not very wide, not a very big area. Point being that all the little 
towns and villages around the Sea of Galilee most likely all know who Jesus is and probably most of them know many people in Jesus' family as well. These are tight-knit communities and they're very, very small. And what, it, what must it mean that people in the villages around the Sea of Galilee who know of Jesus, have heard of Jesus, are all not only willing to come near Him and stay near Him for three days of teaching, but stay there without food. Wouldn't it say that what they find at Jesus' side is actually true? That they are actually seeing lame people get up and walk? That they are actually seeing the blind healed? Now, if you're a skeptic of Jesus... I would urge you to reconsider your position because how does a person from a small fishing village gain so much notoriety as to attract the attention of the entire nation at that time? So much so that he would be considered a threat to the Romans and to the Jewish leaders, not for revolting, but for teaching. What would it mean except that his teaching is accompanied by miraculous deeds that people are observing and find valid. Not only that, but people after him, his followers, who witnessed these events would under the threat of death be willing to push the limits and verify these miraculous works for generations to follow. My challenge to you would be to doubt your doubts. But these crowds are there for three days. They're without any food. And Jesus approaches the disciples and he tells them in verse 32 of his compassion for the Gentiles and his unwillingness to send the crowds away. He says, lest they faint on the way. But notice the subtle change that's happening here. Where the disciples last time asked Jesus to send the crowds away and then Jesus said, you feed them. This time, Jesus, it seems, is is going to the disciples and he's putting the onus on them to feed the crowds right away. The disciples certainly take it this way because look in verse 33. They say, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? They take this as their responsibility to do this. Now, this usually raises a lot of questions because... We're looking back just a few passages ago where this near exact same thing happened and the Jews or the disciples around Jesus saw Jesus multiply bread for the crowd there. He fed a much larger crowd back then or at least a thousand thousand more people then and he did so with less resources. So are the disciples really that dense? It's possible. It's possible that they really just are that dense. We underestimate, I think, what doubt can really do to a person. When you don't believe in Jesus or when you're tempted to doubt that Jesus is true, I think we underestimate just how sensible sin and faithlessness looks at that moment. We commit sins all the time, but we do so and we justify them. 
And every single sin we commit, we can easily justify, no matter how heinous the sin actually is. And it's not until the other side of the sin, where we come to repentance, do we ever look back at that moment and go, what was I thinking? At the time, I remember, and that made sense to me, but now I'm looking back on it, and that's foolishness. What was I thinking back then? So it is possible that the disciples were just that, that dense, and they come upon another situation, and they go, I know that you provided for a group just a few days ago, or just a few weeks ago, or maybe just a few months ago, but I really doubt you can do it again. Maybe they are that dense. It's also possible that they remember Jesus' own words to the Canaanite woman just a few verses ago. Remember back in, G- in verse 24, Jesus told the disciples, I have come only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he tells the woman, the, the Canaanite woman that comes and begs him for healing of his daughter, he says, it is not right, in verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So it's also possible that the disciples are taking these words seriously and They see that Jesus has compassion on the crowds that they might be fed, but they might be thinking that he's unwilling to do some sort of miraculous work in feeding them the way that he fed the Jews just a few passages ago simply because he has already made this statement. That would be a bit of a stretch, though, because he's just been healing a bunch of Gentiles. I think the reason the disciples are balking at Jesus here is not because they've forgotten what he did for the Jews and not because the crowd is a group of Gentiles, but because Jesus is coming to them with the problem and looking to them for the solution. And I think what they have forgotten is what Jesus told them all the way back in chapter 10. Which is, you know, when in chapter 10, Jesus commissions his disciples to go out and do ministry on his behalf. He tells them he's sending them out in pairs. They, they're to go, and he gives them authority over demons to cast out demons. He gives them authority in his name to replicate his ministry. He gives them permission to do things that would otherwise seem impossible for the crowds that they're going to. And we know from the other Gospels that they actually do go and do some of this, and they do have some success with it. But here he comes to them for the solution, and they're saying, what do you want us to do about it? Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? I think Jesus is putting this toward them. Feed the people. To which the disciples, what could we possibly do? How could we possibly do this the way you have? But you see, the scarcity of resources and the greatness of the crowd are not intimidating at all for Jesus. And in a miracle that is reminiscent of Moses in the wilderness, and it's even taking place in a very similar location, the Lord is going to miraculously provide bread for a great crowd in the middle of the wilderness. And the disciples are going to once again see that it's in these times of scarcity that the miraculous provision of the Lord becomes the most apparent. And it reiterates to them yet again that they should have trusted the Lord to begin with. 
We're coming into a new year where New Year's resolutions are going to be on the forefront of everyone's mind. Some people swear them off entirely. I resolve to not make any more New Year's resolutions. And some people are going to, whether they tell anybody or not, are going to privately make some New Year's resolutions. Most of the New Year's resolutions uh, that we're going to be coming up with about this time are going to be things like losing weight, perhaps quitting certain habits, perhaps taking up whole new habits that are better, doing less of one thing, doing less of watching TV, doing more of reading books or things like this. But how many of us will resolve to push ourselves into uncomfortable places where we will have no choice but to trust in the Lord's miraculous provision? How many of us will resolve to do that this year? To push ourselves, maybe financially, into a place where we have to trust in the Lord's miraculous provision? How many of us will resolve, maybe with our jobs or maybe with our friendships, to push ourselves and push our friends into places that are somewhat uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel, trusting in the Lord's miraculous provision? I mean, the crowd is there three days in the wilderness with no food. That's uncomfortable, to say the least. I've never been impressed by the Lord's provision of daily bread when I had a pantry full of food. I should be. But I'm not. When was the last time you sat down with your whole family, with anybody, around a table, and you were absolutely astounded that the Lord had provided you dinner? I don't mean you prayed and you thanked God for the dinner that he provided. Most of us in the room are going to do that. I mean, how many of you could not put fork to mouth because you just had to sit back in your chair and think to yourself, that's unbelievable. The Lord provided this dinner for us. Now, we fill out our Instacart and our groceries are delivered to our door. When's the last time we praised God that the Panda Express was sitting right there on the corner? Thank you, Lord, it was open. I didn't even know. And I was famished. And I walked in and they had food for me. Thank you. It's unbelievable. No, but when George Mueller was without food at the orphanage and he sat the children down at the table And they prayed and thanked the Lord for the food that they didn't yet have, but trusted that he was going to provide. And no longer did they say amen, then they hear a knock at the door, and the bread truck is broken down right outside the orphanage. Now that's astounded that the Lord has provided for their needs. They were blown away. By the Lord's provision. But when I've been pushed to the brink, when I felt like I had absolutely no more to give at my absolute wit's end, when Andrea and I were financially the most cash strapped, 
in our life, when the resources that we had were absolutely minimal, I was amazed at how deep and how rich was the provision of the Lord. We save, we grow in wealth, we get fat and happy, and we forget just how gracious and merciful and benevolent the Lord really is. The resources for the disciples in this scene are scarce. And they're certainly not confident in their own ability to provide, but Jesus' provision seems unhindered by the scarcity of resources. He owns it all. The second thing that I want you to see is that Jesus is calling people from every tribe and language and nation to his table. There's no doubt that the feeding miracles, both of them, the feeding of the 5,000 and now the feeding of the 4,000, both of them are reiterating for us, they're reasserting Jesus' ability to provide for his people. God's ability to provide for his people. Now, of course, anytime there is a miracle, whether it be the walking on water, the turning water into wine, the the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, regardless of what the miracle is, there are always modern day skeptics who are going to sit 2,000 years removed from Jesus and seek to explain away the miracles in a way that might give some sort of practical explanation for what really happened. But following Jesus' ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, you have a multitude of witnesses to these miracles, of whom Matthew is one, who's testifying to their validity and facing certain death and exhausting themselves for the sake of the gospel to tell everyone about the good news of the resurrection, not least of which also the other miracles, the feedings, the walking on waters, the other things that happen that have no explainable reason except that Jesus owns it all and he just did it. So Matthew clearly includes both of these miracles to reassure his disciples, lest you be unaware that he is in charge of it all and is capable of multiplying bread miraculously for all of the people that he wants to. However, I think there's also other things going on in this passage too, in addition to that, that we should learn. I'm going to repeat what I said a few weeks ago in the feeding of the 5,000 because I think the same thing applies here. There may well be an intentional connection that Matthew is helping us see between this meal that these people share with Jesus, the great provider, and the last supper that Jesus shares with his disciples toward the end of this book. Jesus is playing in both places the role of the host and he is, his, his table, in this case, is the field, the wilderness that they're in, in the middle of nowhere. And his portions that he starts with are meager at best. Nowhere near enough, it seems, to feed 4,000 men, let alone their wives and children. But in this meal, and in the Last Supper, when Jesus plays the role of host, we see this same pattern to this meal. He takes He gives, he gives thanks, he breaks the bread, and he gives to the people. He takes, he gives thanks, he breaks the bread, 
and he distributes, he gives to the people. And Matthew uses the same pattern of taking, blessing, breaking, and giving for all of Jesus' meals that he hosts, most likely to remind the reader of the connection that Jesus not only has the ability to provide bread for his disciples, sure, but ultimately he will provide for them something much greater, that Jesus' own body will become the bread that is broken, and it too will also cover a multitude of people. But in this case, not merely a multitude of Jews, but a multitude of Gentiles as well. In fact, his body will be broken to cover a multitude of sins, not for the Jews alone, but for the sins of the whole world. In order to be seen as a gracious host in the first century Jewish context, you were supposed to provide enough for everyone to eat and then to have a little bit left over in the end. That would make you a gracious first century Jewish host. Jesus provides here not only enough bread for the crowds to eat, but for the disciples to have enough left over to collect seven basketfuls. The disciples now have enough who had nothing virtually before the meal now have enough to not only give to themselves, but to distribute to others who are asking for it. So if our minds are supposed to be thinking about the symbolic nature of the Lord's Supper and what we find there, then what we see in this miracle, in these extra baskets that are collected for the disciples, is that if you are among the Gentiles... Not only is there enough bread from the children's table for you to eat and be filled, but there remains enough left over so that everyone who is asking for what Jesus offers can eat and also be filled. So it says unequivocally that Jesus' desire is to call people from every nation and tribe and language and tongue to his table. But let me ask you, if Jesus' mission really is to include people from every nation and language and tongue, If Jesus' mission really is this, which we know it is because the end of Matthew, he's going to send them on a great commission. We know this because in Revelation, we see every tribe and language and nation and tongue standing around the throne of God, praising him. So we know that his mission is this. But if that is truly his mission, is to bring all nations to himself so that they may partake in his broken body, then what role are you playing in inviting the nations to the table of the Lord? What role are you playing in inviting the nations to the table of the Lord? Are you taking the seven baskets full and handing them out to friends and neighbors and co-workers? What role do you play in seeing that the nations come to Christ. That includes parents with children. What role do you play with your kids in the home? 
of seeing that they have the bread of life to eat from. That includes workers in the workplace, whatever your job. What role are you playing there at in work of ensuring that your coworkers have access to the bread that Christ provides? That they can come to the table of the Lord? Or is your plan on judgment day to stand before the Lord and say to him, Lord, where would I get enough bread to feed so great a crowd? There are reasons that we give for failing to share the gospel with others. There are many, perhaps more than I'm going to name. But the point is we use them often for failure to share. The first is I don't know enough. I have enough knowledge in my head and I, I'm fearful that I'm going to go into a situation and they're going to ask me a question and I'm just not going to know the answer. There's also the idea that this is going to ruin the relationship. If I, I step out there and I share the gospel with this person, then it's going to absolutely ruin the relationship that I have with them and they're going to hate me forever. Another one is it's going to be awkward. Well, if I, if I speak up now, how do I do that in a non-awkward way? How do I still sound credible and intelligent when this is going to be, they're going to think ill of me and there's going to be this awkward moment in the conversation? How do I, how do I even bring it up? Another one is, is to discredit ourselves. They know my past. They know what I've done. They have all the goods on me. They know me better than anyone else. We talk about this all the time with our families, right? They know me better than anyone. They're going to throw that up in my face. How can I really share the gospel knowing what I've done? Or then we think, this will jeopardize my future. This might be our case in the workplace. This is going to jeopardize uh, my future progress in the company, or this might result in my termination. But you see, all of these excuses are failures to trust in the provision of the Lord. They're all failures to trust in the provision of the Lord and a refusal to give the bread that the Lord provides to other people that they may eat. So instead of thinking to myself, I don't, I don't know enough. Why don't you share what you do know and be amazed at how well he has actually equipped you? Share and be amazed at how all the things that you say are exactly what that person needs to hear. Instead of thinking to yourself, well, this is going to ruin the relationship, instead share and be amazed at how settled your heart is on where your priorities should be in friendship. In other words, when you share, you'll realize that the risk is worth the reward. Is it better to sit on your hands and for this person to go to hell? Is it better for you to sit on your hands and for this person to not know that there is salvation that could spare them of an eternity in hell? Is the risk worth the reward? Instead of thinking to yourself, well, this is going to be really awkward. It's going to make this conversation awkward. Trust in the Lord's provision. Share and be amazed at how much confidence the Lord will actually give you during those circumstances. 
Instead of thinking to yourself, they know all the things I've done. They know my past. Instead, share and be amazed at how your past actually becomes a gateway of hope for the grace and mercy of the Lord to be communicated to someone else. Your past will become hope for someone else's future. All of the excuses you use to discredit yourself. Someone else out there is struggling with that exact same thing and they don't have the hope of Christ. And they may throw it in your face, but it gives you the opportunity to articulate the gospel to them. Yes, I struggled with all of those things and some of them I still struggle to this day with. But how great and how merciful is Christ who has forgiven me of those things. And his word tells me that he's faithful and just. And if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. He'll do the same thing for you too. Instead of thinking this is going to jeopardize my future, share And be amazed at how little you'll actually care about your earthly future. You'll realize this is the mission God has his church and his people on. This is what matters. This is the reason he has put you in your workplace around your coworkers. This is the reason he has put you in your neighborhood around your neighbors. This is the reason that he has put you in the place that he has put you in so that you can distribute the bread to other people. Like a soldier going into battle. You will not know the radical provision that the Lord will give to you until you find yourself in the wilderness and in absolute need. He doesn't give it to you beforehand. He gives it to you when you require it. Step out and trust that he will. Step out and see how gracious and how merciful and how abundant are his resources. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it testifies to us time and time again. How sovereign and how gracious and how merciful you really are. It tells us of your holiness and your goodness. It tells us of your wrath and your grace. tells us of judgment and eternal life and everything in between. Where could we go to find some other source of provision other than you? Where could we go where we would have it better than we do right now? The answer is nowhere. Lord, you know that. And you're showing that to us every day. Give us eyes to see it.
May we be astounded at our dinner tables, at how merciful and gracious your provision. May we be astounded in in our workplaces at your graciousness and your provision. May we be astounded as we share the gospel with people at how much you are willing to provide for us. And how often you bring to mind all those verses that we think we've long forgotten. At all the times where your spirit gives us the words exactly the way we need them at the time where it's required. Give us the faith to step out and trust that what you provide really is enough and that you're not limited. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.